What is up, everyone? Welcome in another episode of Just Another Sports Podcast. Greg Swatek, proud to be joined. Proud to be rejoined. Pleased to be rejoined. And proud, pr- and proud. proud too, uh, to be uh, rejoined. Say, that's really by, nice of uh, you. Uh, Josh Smith, uh, back from a uh, week of vacation. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. And uh, also welcome back to uh, Joe Ferraro, FNP sports writer. How are you, Joe? Awesome. Glad to be here. We're going to do something a little different uh, this week since we're in the middle of the uh, uh, the summer and, and, and uh, sort of a slow time in the sports calendar. So uh, Josh had a good idea this week. Um, he posed a question. What athletes would you have liked to see had a better run uh, of their career? Like they were injured, like something shortened their career. What was a promising career for them? What athletes would you have liked to see had a little more uh, luck in terms yeah. of injuries and stuff like that. And I can give you – it's uh, it came from someone on Twitter named Brandon Olson who works for Whole Nine Sports. He's the founder of something called Whole Nine Sports. And this, the tweet, actually, I can just read it to you. And it says, social experiment. If you came across this tweet – if you come across this tweet, reply with the one athlete you'd wish had been perfectly healthy their whole career. So that's where we're going with this. So that got us to thinking, like, what athletes would we have liked to see um, uh, have a better run in, yeah. of, 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 uh, in terms of health and stuff t- during their course of their career? And, and the one, when you really start to look at it and think about it, it it's quite a list of uh, yeah. uh, athlete, athletes yep. that you could uh, come up with and say, man, things could have been different um, uh, for this person had it not been for injuries or, or, or whatever. Now, this is not, like, self-inflicted stuff. This is not, like... Uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, marital uh, disputes, and stuff like that. <laughs> who, yeah, who are you talking about there, Greg? Uh, well, <laughs> they, it, it could be any number of any number of guys. The, the only professional athlete who's ever had like his career, professional career derailed by a, a marital spat, Tiger Woods. <laughs> yeah, well, he's he springs to mind, but some some other athletes. It's probably happened to some other athletes too. But. Maybe. Um, uh, certainly divorce is not uncommon in, yeah. in, in the world of uh, professional athletes. Um, so, so we were thinking and, uh, and you, I think the first name you came up with Josh was and the first name you mentioned yeah. was uh, Mickey Mantle. Yeah. That's the, that is the very first one. I have a list of three that really came to mind as I sat and thought about it. Mantle was the v- very first one that I thought of. And I, I don't know that a lot of people are aware. I mean, maybe they are big sports fans probably know that he, he had a, terribly bad injury a knee injury at the very beginning of his professional career with the Yankees and it was I think in the World Series Joe you might even know about this more details about it than I do I think it happened in 1951 um, and he stepped in I think it was like a sprinkler system uh, a hole in the outfield essentially and tweaked his knee and it was never really the same ever ever after that and I you know he had surgeries back when you know knee surgeries weren't as as commonplace as they are today and here was a guy who ended up becoming a, a hall a first ballot hall of famer and ma- and one of the greatest baseball players of all time but he could have been even better and that's like the shocking thing about it is he was you know 500 and whatever home runs he hit he could run like a deer you know he was this great outfielder and it could have been so much better um, if not for this knee injury that he had that plagued him for his whole and career. And he was another one that scarred with the issues that we uh, 
talked just talked yeah. about with the, yeah with, with the with the drinking the womanizing and, and, and all that stuff sure so. that's another thing that probably hurt him as his career got got along was how much he was he was drinking right but and, and, and there's so many good ones uh, yeah another one that sprang to mind joe i think was one of the first ones to mention it last night when we were talking about it was bo jackson sure uh, I think it was the famous Sunday night football game against uh, the Seahawks in in the Kingdom. So they're playing on that awful <laughs> artificial turf, and uh, and he gets chased down and, and tackled, and he has a hip injury. Actually, yeah, that was you're thinking. You're thinking the Seahawks game was the game they really sort of made his name, or be, you know, in the NFL. Was that the one where he ran over Brian yeah. Bosworth? Yeah, it was a Sunday afternoon against the Bengals where he yes, got dragged yes, down from the, behind. The, 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 but he right. was tearing them up. He he, I don't know how many yards he had to that point before he got tackled from behind right. and had his hip displaced. Basically. Not to mention that he was one. Of, he was an all-star level baseball player too. So I mean, I don't know. You guys, we're all about the same age. He's the best athlete I've ever seen on perform on television for sure. I, I mean, I don't know that we're ever going to see somebody like that again. I, mean, I think it's him. Uh, for me, it's a tie him and and Deion Sanders. Sure, uh, it's, it's really tough. But both both of those guys, you know, could do both sports at a at a high level. It's uh, I, you know, I, very very impressive. Yeah, I, I'd argue Bo Jackson though was a better baseball player than Deion Sanders was. Although Deion was a yeah was a. A better football player, yeah. Deion might have been a little better football player, but not by much. I, I think the gap between Bo and Dion in baseball is much wider than Bo and Dion in football. So That's yeah, fair. weren't they kind of? They were sort of opposite uh, in the way they treated their careers. Dion was primarily a football player and sort of moonlighted at baseball, whereas Bo was initially primarily a baseball player and moonlighted in football. That's um, how it worked. Yeah, yeah I, I think, man, I. It's just such a shame what happened to him because it would have been so neat to see how long he could maintain what he was doing. He was only playing how many how many games a season was he playing for the Raiders in those first couple of years? It was like only like half a season or something, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was yeah. probably ten games, ten of the, yeah, nine to ten of the sixteen games because he was committed to playing baseball. Right. So, but that but that wrecked his baseball uh, career too. That, yeah. that that hip injury. So, so just the what could have been with Bo Jackson and. And another common thread with Dion was just their personalities. Like, Bo was not shy about telling you how great Bo was. I mean, the whole Bo Knows ad campaign was perfectly suited to his personality because he knew how great he was, and he, he would tell you yeah. about it too. So, And then you had primetime Dion Sanders, Mr. Flashy, doing music videos and stuff like that. So <laughs> so just the, just the personas of those guys sort of made them who they were. Um, and Dion, actually, well. at the end of the tail end of his career, I think even when he was with Dallas – he had a he had a toe injury. Like he had turf toe, and I you right. know that might sound inconsequential, but it's a mm-hmm. de- can be a debilitating injury. Um, I know he played through that for a number of years. So I, he, your primary job is running. Yeah, yep. I mean I'm not saying he belongs on this list because he was he certainly had a long stretch of health, you know, good health, and won Super Bowls and was uh, uh, the best corner in the game and maybe the best corner of all time. But hell, he could have been healthier too. You know, right? So. And what are, what are some of the other names that, that, yeah. that, that spring to mind? Yeah, the other for you guys, the top three I think I came up with just um, off the top of my head w- w- was Mantle and Bo, and then I threw Monica Sellis in there. And I mean, was, I know it's women's it's women's tennis, but no, um, no that, that was a big one because she was yeah. basically number, the number one player in the world. She she was she, in, in in the prime of her career. Like she could have won maybe five to ten more grand slams at, right had she not been stabbed. and she had some success against steffi graf too she she had really uh dug in and and was you know she really had her number her for, she had her, her number top spot and then and then this happens 
So right. and, and just the, the shock of the incident too. I mean, here's oh yeah, was, we she, should she, probably. I mean, I don't know how many people were all completely aware of what happened I mean, with her. It, but. it was um low. It was it wasn't a top tier event, but it was it was a a mid to high level professional tennis tournament, I believe, in Germany. Yeah, and some deranged Steffi Groff fan got onto the court. And, and during a changeover with Monica Sellis' back turned, uh, she was she was stabbed in the back by by this deranged fan, like like how security like did not grab this guy before he got as far as he did is is amazing. Even even back then, this happened in the early nineties, I, I believe. But I mean, you're telling the story, and it, to me, it's still shocking that this occurred. Right. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You see, obviously, you you'll see this in tennis uh, matches, big events like dudes will rush run onto the court and try to get close to Federer or something but a lot of times they see him come in they're able to get away from him a little bit or if somebody comes and gets them before they can actually approach the athlete and this wasn't that the case I mean this guy came right down and just reached over and stabbed her um and it's just it's shocking to believe that that even occurred right yeah it was a horrific incident but but this guy I mean he was a Steffi Groff yeah and that that's why he did you, it that shows you how dominant the Sellis was and how how Mm-hmm. She sort of had Groff's number because this fan had to take matters into his own hands to take care yeah. in his own deranged mind of, of, of Monica Sellis. So, but this was the prime of her career. I mean, this was like this would have been like if Michael Jordan's career was. I'm not comparing Sellis to Jordan, but but just like imagine him at the peak of his career and just it suddenly just was over. Well, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, well, he walked away well, in the peak right. of his career. He, he did <laughs> a couple times. Yeah. Um. But um, she did. She did come back. She did. Tell us after, and, and and she played at a pretty high level. I think she she maybe uh, got to another Grand Slam final, I, I believe. But she she was never yeah. the, the same player, and her her life was totally different. I mean, this was the first like. Imagine if this happened in like the social media era, where there's Twitter and all these various channels where everyone could comment instantly. I mean, it, it would have been the reaction would have even been yeah even much bigger uh, had, it, had it happened in this day and age. And I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, I, I guess they've done lots of features and stuff on her over the years. I, I'm pretty sure most of the problem that she had when she came back was mental. Uh, it wasn't, she, it's not like her, she was stabbed and it wasn't like a, it wasn't such a bad stab that, you know, she couldn't recover from it and be able to return to the court and be the same player. She just, I think mentally had a really difficult time coming back from that. I don't know. You were going to say something, Joe. No, that, that, that's the exact point. Yeah. I mean, when you're you're going back on the tennis court, uh, you know, the memories of just being on a tennis court when when someone attacked her. Yeah, it's it, it's it, just the, the, the whole shock of it. Right. You know, all, all those emotions just come, come running through you when you're back on the, on the tennis court and you know, the, you know, the focus, uh, you know, all the, all the positive emotions that you need are, aren't there Well, for, for a while. And, and they might still do it today. I don't, I don't pay close enough attention during changeovers and stuff, but they put, they put an actual person behind, behind, uh, the player's seat. So they can't, so they couldn't be uh, who, and their uh, turn and their the security right. guards probably turned and watching the, 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 crowd. the crowd. Right. Yeah. So someone can't come from behind like that and, and, and do that. Um, I, I don't believe they still do that, but, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I think um, there was an instance with, with Federer, uh, where somebody approached him. He was uh, not too happy about it. I think his words were, Hey, this is my office. You know, this is where I work. Let me do my work. Yeah. So, so the fact that people are still able to do it is uh, disconcerting. Yeah, a little, a little yeah. concerning. Yeah. And I remember when he won the French Open too. Some guy got onto the court and like actually got 
was able to put his hands on 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 Federer too. Federer like retreated to like the back wall behind the baseline as they as they corralled this guy and got him off the court. But I mean, I I guess it's not that hard to have. There's so many seats and any, anyone could just run and jump on the court. But but the fact that these people aren't being corralled more quickly is, is yeah. sort of shocking. So well, it's, it's good at least that this hasn't <clears> happened again um, in terms of like somebody getting injured. But uh, the shock of that will never wear off, I don't think. For, yeah, even for it, people that it, saw it, it. It, was, it was a Sports Illustrated uh, cover story. Right. So and rightly so. Right. Um, before we leave tennis, there was another one that you guys brought oh, yeah. up, and uh, yeah. that's Juan Mel- Martin uh, Del Potro. Um, uh, in 2009, this was during the height of, of, of Federer's dominance. He was going for six straight U.S. Opens, um, and, he, and he beat Federer in the 2009 U.S. Open final to end his run at the U.S. Open. Um, Del Potro's Federer, I think, was 28 at the time. Del Potro was probably 22, 23. Yeah, I was going to say 22. It's about right. Somewhere yeah. in there. Yep. And here's the next rising star in tennis who beat the great Roger Federer during the height of Federer's dominance and uh after that u.s open he had he had problems with his wrists he had surgery and, and he's never really gotten back to the same yeah. point um I, I think he did well in the olympics one year um he, i i'm man did he win I, gold did he win gold in, in the in he the may olympics? have um, i think maybe he did uh, I, I, I believe he did and then also i believe last year he made it to the u.s open final uh, where he lost to novak Djokovic. i i believe yeah, right. I mean, but he was like you're making a good point and that that was when Federer was in his prime. Nadal had had uh had risen as well. So you had those two. Murray wasn't far behind. Um and Djokovic was still coming along too. But the point is, it couldn't it, it became the big 4, right? With, with Andy with Murray. Andy Murray right? But uh it very well could have been the big five, a big 5 and he could he could have been putting a dent in uh, you know some of these uh, some of these other majors, and J- right. Djokovic may not have as many. Nadal may not have as many. If he would have maintained his health, because it was a wrist injury, wasn't it? Yeah, and he, that's a ma- that's I mean, obviously a major injury for tennis players, especially. And we've heard people say I, we we watch him play, and we've heard like John McEnroe and whoever is commentating. I, they say that his forehand is like it, the best shot. The best forehand in tennis. It's when it when it's on. It's the biggest forehand I I've, yeah. I, I've ever seen. So it, it's a major major weapon. So right. Um, and, and if you're having wrist problems, that that really screws up your ability to hit a, a, sure. a, sh- a shot like that. And in the 2009 U.S. Open semifinals, he beat Nadal. So he beat Nadal and Federer back to back. He's the first person to beat Nadal and Federer in the same in, in, in the same major again at so. age at age twenty two or whatever he was. Right. So. so he was the next star, and he's, he's he's never really got got back to that point. He's had a he's had a fine career, but he's never gotten really right. uh, the chance to live up to his full potential uh, w- w- with all the wrist surgeries. So. Uh, a couple of guys I wanted to bring up because I, I know Joe will have uh, uh, an appreciation for this uh, are a pair of Chicago Cubs pitchers, uh, Mark Pryor and Kerry uh, Wood. So uh, who at one point were maybe the top two pitchers in all of baseball. Uh, I don't know about top two in, in all of baseball, I mean, but still they formed a pretty formidable uh, rotation uh, for, for me. Uh, everybody's going to look at Kerry Wood uh, over Mark Pryor just because Kerry Wood had a 20-strikeout a game in, in 1998. I, I actually think uh, Mark Pryor was, uh, you know, the bigger one for, for me because 
it was a case in 2003 where you know three years ago when Arietta had his you know phenomenal season it was a case where you know outing in outing out every Cub fan knew the Cubs were, were going to get a win every time he pitched and I, I remember having that same feeling about about Mark Pryor I mean the the, the curveball uh, was just nasty, uh, you know, and it, it wasn't just, uh, you know, he, he would be dominant once every five starts. It was consistent start in, start out. You knew you were going to get a really, <laughs> you knew you were going to win. I mean, that, 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 that's the way it was. And, you know, you throw that curveball and the fastball in the mid to high 90s uh, with such pinpoint control. It was it was impressive to watch, and then just a, a slew of injuries, you know, uh, starting with an Achilles tendon, and then uh, you know it, it went to his elbow. Uh, he got he got got a comebacker hit to him uh, right back in the box, you know, shattered his uh, his forearm a bit, and then uh, just another slew of shoulder injuries, and and. Out he, was, he, went. he was done, yeah. yeah. It, it was like a boom. meteor. You I know? mean, pretty much. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing how the injury bug sort of hit both of them so hard at roughly the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, Wood uh, actually, you know, stuck around a little bit longer as a, as a reliever. It was actually a, a pretty – Pretty pretty good, you know, serviceable uh, reliever. Uh, left the Cubs, went to the Yankees. Uh, actually, uh, picked up the <laughs> the cutter from uh, Mariano Rivera, and then came back to the Cubs. Uh, had a, cu- a couple of really good years as a closer. So, but uh, long term, you could say, well, uh, you know, Kerry Woods' uh, career as a, as a starter, what what, what might have been, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, prior just because it. He just fell apart with just uh, it was just so sudden. Uh, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> what happened here? Yeah. And, and Josh's fandom was impacted by uh, Dante Culpepper's uh, yeah, in- injury with the Vikings. I threw, I threw him, his name out there while we were texting about this just because he was he was like they finally had a franchise quarterback talking about the, the Vikings. And um, you know, he had a couple of really big seasons with Moss as his, as his top target. Then they traded Moss away, and they were really building you know the, the whole team around his ability to throw the ball. And I think it was the, the, just – the, the year right after they traded Moss, he uh, he got hit. He was actually he was actually scrambling over the uh, in the middle of the field, and he got hit from both sides, and his knee just was destroyed. Sort of similar to the way, like I mean, it wasn't the same extent as Teddy Bridgewater's, but it was the it was the trifecta. It was like all three ligaments were torn, and um, you know, he, I think it was right right around then they. Uh, Brad Childers had come in and was their head coach, and Cole Pepper demanded like a, a new contract while he was still recovering from this de- catastrophic knee injury, and they were like, "Yeah, we don't think so," and they got rid of him, and his career was never ever the same. He never really came back from that. He played again. He played for the Dolphins and he played for the Raiders, and uh, was just clearly hampered by that, and was just never the same player again. But he, man, he was you know when he was those couple of years that he was was really on with Moss. He was maybe the in the top 5 top 5 quarterback in the NFL, big strong dude. He he had a lot of fumbling problems. He got he he lost a lot of uh balls uh getting hit um from behind or or whatever cuz he did he did scramble around a little bit, but I would just love to have seen him be able to play at his peak for another say 5 years with that organization just because they have had such trouble <laughs> finding. And after he left, it was like Brad Johnson, who was like 37 years old, and then it became this just rotation of you know uh, journeymen and Tavares Jackson and garbage like that. 
Um, you know, and of course they would occasionally they're, sprinkle in Brett Favre. But and now, and now they're overpaying Kirk Cousins. Now they're overpaying Kirk Cousins. They right. still they and they they just they still haven't solved that problem. Like I I I don't care what you what you say about Cousins. It's a three year contract. He's like he is like their guy for three years, but I don't think he's getting another contract after this. This one's up. And some of the, from them from them anyway. And some of the behind the scenes anecdotes you read about Dante Culpepper too. Like the guy was just a ridiculous. Athlete. Yeah. Like he could do anything. Like if you asked him to do something athletic, he could do it. Yeah. Handstands, backflips, yeah. front flips. And meanwhile, like, he's like six five, two hundred and sixty pounds. Right. You know, so so behemoth. Just, right. So just the awestruck stories you would hear about him just yeah. of, of his athletic prowess was <laughs> ridiculous and it was, it was it was never the same uh yeah a, after the injury yeah, it's so. a shame you know a guy as big as that it's almost ben roethlisberger-esque yeah. where you know you try to tackle him you're not going to bring him down the first time you know that that, that part of it is so, so important just to extend plays and whatnot and, and the arm just, the arm speaks for itself oh yeah he was one of those guys who could throw at 70 yards in the air yeah. you know there aren't many guys like Mahomes that can do it I'm sure you know Joe Flacco you could hear stories about him but Culpepper had like one of the strongest arms in in the league um and maybe in you know among any quarterback ever yeah um, hey Dante so. long jump 20 feet or right, high, right. High, high jump Six feet. I mean, he he could, he could do it. It it it, it, it on re- on exactly. on request basically. So, uh, one big name we're sort of glossing over is Larry Bird. Yeah, I, I mean, I he did he did have a long career, but I was trying to look at his statistics and see like when his back started to get bulky and and start bothering him. I, uh, it was you know it was somewhat in the middle of his career, I think, and uh, still was. Among the best, the greatest players of all time, like he was he forced were, to re- basically forced him to retire. Right, his, his back issues. So, and, and the Celtics were really good. I mean, they, they could have challenged for more championships had Bird been completely healthy. Because there were stories where he was just hobbling <laughs> to to the starting line of some of those playoff games, and and really it was all. He could just to play a few minutes of, of some of those playoff games. I think so. early '90s is when it really started to get to him because the one the one image I always remember of him just uh, you know looking at Celtics games sometimes during timeouts when he'd be on the bench he'd be flat on his stomach you know just to give his back a break and it, it would be that way all, all the time. Yeah, and he wasn't that old at that point. Yeah. Uh, we're talking he was probably. Th- 30-ish uh, right. right when when this was uh, becoming a problem for him. Yeah. So, I mean, and they were a team that, you know, year in and year out, they were challenging. They were playing against the Lakers. It was either the Lakers or them for X number of years winning the, winning the title. And they, and they were in there with the Pistons and the, and the Bulls, too, yeah. uh, in, in yeah. that late 80s, early 90s uh, era. So. Yeah. I think uh, yeah, I, we could go back to baseball too because I definitely want Joe. Joe mentioned one a really big one that people again. I've yeah. talked about mantle a little bit, um, and you mentioned Joe Sandy Koufax, and I yep. want you to well, you to address that oh, one because yeah. that's a, that's a huge name. Absolutely, you know, here's a guy who who quit at the age of of thirty, <laughs> and so you know, and and the thing is, people talk about him all the time, and I actually. Even though he played for those those twelve years, it's like you know he he set the standard for everybody else. You know, if, if there's a big name coming along, I hear these uh, talking heads say, "Oh, you know, this guy's uh, he, he's not Sandy Koufax." Uh, that's the first guy mm-hmm. they, they they talk about, and so so you know, here's a guy who. If if he was doing what he was doing back then, uh, it'd be put to a halt. Uh, three of his last four seasons, he pitched more than three hundred innings, and so they, they just uh, you know you know rode him like a 
like a mule. And in the the second of those four, it was a deal where you know he had an arthritic elbow. Mm-hmm. That that cut down his innings to a measly some you know two hundred twenty three <laughs> innings you know that's all that's all yeah. and then uh, they gave him a break and then you know what does he do uh, you know the next two years what does he do he throws the uh, three hundred fifty nine and then uh, another three hundred twenty nine so uh, imagine these anal- so, yeah. analytics geeks uh, uh, looking at those numbers yeah. and, and, and probably wondering how the guy's arm didn't fall and off so, but damn near did I mean that's uh, the thing I mean he, he th- those last two years he pitched in excruciating pain but you know it was a deal where guess what he he had to do it uh, and and yeah I mean five I think what the last five years he he was the he was the ERA champion. So, yeah, I mean, if he had had something manageable, you know, between 225 and 250 even, uh, boy, I mean, he had 165 wins yeah. by the age of 30. I mean, he could have he could have had, uh, you know, close to 300. He also if, he pitched, the he, per- he pitched a perfect game, and, and in my estimation, it may be the greatest perfect game of all time. Maybe the greatest game ever pitched because I think he mm-hmm. I want to say he had like 14 strikeouts or something maybe even more than that in his perfect game which I think is the highest number of anybody who's pitched a perfect yeah, he was game. literally untouchable yeah you know? but uh and to sp- so we mentioned Kofax we mentioned Mantle I, I want to mention that Jane Levy who's a just fantastic writer has has written autobiography has written autobiography has written biographies on both of them the one on Kofax I think she wrote first it was probably I don't know, maybe 20 years ago now. But um, if you're looking for something to to read about that guy, that's the one to read. And she and it's really well done because I think, and I mentioned the perfect game. I think every other chapter she writes is an inning, as uh, an inning of the perfect game, where she just describes what happens in the game. Anyway, um, that's it's an authoritative uh, biography of his, and it, it goes into great detail about like what he went through to continue pitching in those last few years of his career where he literally, like he would put this balm on his arm apparently Mm -hmm. that you couldn't be in the room with. Like it was that, it was like that hot. Um, It would make your eyes water if you walked in the room with it and he would rub this stuff on his arm essentially to numb it before he pitched. And uh, you know, she details all everything that he went through to to prepare his arm and to take care of it um, after he would pitch. And it was, you know, obviously incredibly amounts incredible amounts of icing and and things like that uh that that he went through he was in excruciating pain but he would continue to pitch the amount of time, the amount of innings right, and right that you're talking about yeah i'm thinking you know after him maybe i want to say you know a handful of pitchers uh through as as many as 300 i think it's been 39 years since since anybody's done it. it's you know steve carlton i mm-hmm. believe in 1980 so it's just uh yeah, the the workload. A different kind what, what, what of animal. was uh, was insane. Different kind of era. Where, you know, guys pitching every every fourth day. You know, regularly. So, so yeah. And then uh, you know another pitcher. You know, I I, I wanted to bring up J.R. Richard. Uh, you know, here's a guy who in the early '80s. Now now you have you know maybe a dozen maybe more guys who could throw a hundred. Here's a guy you know in a rotation with Nolan Ryan who could throw a hundred. And then, unfortunately, he had uh, you know issues with uh, with his heart. had a, had a stroke, and you know just couldn't couldn't find it again. I mean, I, that that's that's one of my top three to see a guy who could throw a hundred yeah. back in those days when. It was you know, probably just him was and just Nolan Ryan. Him, him and Nolan Ryan uh, to to see that. Ex- How that many seasons extended. was he was he really uh, effective, or was he pitching before the heart problems? You know, I, I don't know. I, it's I think just it was, a couple, you know, right? Yeah, two to three, and uh, and that's it. And 
Do you yeah, have any? Do you have any J.R. Richard baseball cards? I do not. Really? I bet you I John do Cannon does. We need to ask him he, when we he, get out. Of I'm here. sure he does. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet my house because he it. only had like two. He probably only had two cards, and I think uh, <laughs> they're probably hard to come by. So here's another baseball name: Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. Uh, that was a name that came up. I saw this online, and uh, one of the uh, one of the guys, one of my fellow Vikings fans that I t- I tweet back and forth with occasionally um mentioned that the griffey was was his number one on this list and i man i i, I don't know he he could very well he's right up there with mantle and bow t- to me in, in terms of this list anyway mm-hmm. um because he you know he put up those huge numbers and then he went to cincinnati and everyone expected this was right in the middle of his career right he still had plenty of time as a at the peak of his career uh, to continue, he was he was probably averaging like forty five home runs a season there for a big chunk of his time in Seattle. He was winning Gold Gloves every season, uh, and then it was a bug. It was almost like a bug that hit him. It was like one thing after another. I don't yep. I don't think it was one thing in particular, was it? Nope. That nope. that got him. I think it was lower body stuff most of the time. Um, but he he spent numerous numerous years in Cincinnati, uh, you know, just fighting through injuries and playing. Uh, probably fewer than a hundred games each season for a, lo- a long stretch of that contract, and his, you know, he just he wasn't himself anymore for for a large chunk of his Hall of Fame career. Yeah, yeah. And if he was, I mean, I think he finished yeah. with six hundred and thirty some yeah. odd home runs. I mean, he'd have close to eight hundred if he if he if he if he was able to sustain that level that he was that he had in Seattle. I think, uh, you know, during Cincinnati, maybe he had two seasons that were even remotely close to the ones he had in uh, in, in Seattle yeah. so so yeah you you could be talking about the you know the all-time home run king if it wasn't for the diminished uh, playing time I just remember watching Sports Center like this was during the height of of of, of ESPN Sports Center when guys like Charlie Steiner and Dan Patrick and Craig Kilborn were still doing it yeah. o- Oberman and and and, and the show was often dominated by Griffey home run exploits and highlights and stuff like that. Yeah, so here's so. yeah here's some numbers on Griffey. We'll start let's we'll start in uh, in '93 and his home run totals were 45, 40, 17 because he got hurt. Uh, I think he broke his wrist against the Orioles actually. 49, 56, 56, 48, 40 in his first year in Cincinnati in 2000, and then went to 22, 8, 13, 20. And then back up to 35 in 2005 when he was 35 years old. So, yeah, there's uh, three, four seasons there where he clearly wasn't healthy. And had he been, you got to figure he would have hit, you know, probably another 100 home runs during that stretch of time. So, uh, yeah. that's just, you know, and the other thing, it, it's a sad story, but at the same time, like he was, you know, it's, he was, he was a great player. He's one of the all time greats. Here's a name for all you Oriole fans out there, Glenn <laughs> Davis. Why why do we have to listen to this? I mean, I, I can't remember what happened actually with his injury. He got hurt. It was, a, get... it was, it was a nerve. It was like he had okay. like, he like well, first of all, he he was an all star level. He was a two time all star. The Orioles thought they were trading yeah. for this great first baseman and this great hitter, which he was for the Astros for a couple of years. For a couple of years, of years yeah. Right. And and they gave up the farm for him. Basically, they gave up a hall of prospects, including I believe Kurt Schilling and Steve Finley, uh, uh, who became an All Star outfielder. Pete Harnish, uh, I think, was the <clears throat> other name in that bunch. Right, Harnish. So they gave up a hall of prospects for this power hitting first baseman, and he just it just never materialized. 
for him in an Oriole uniform. He he had some nerve injury with his neck. I, I think in one season he recovered from that and then sort of had a mediocre season. And then in 93, I believe, he was sitting in the dugout and Jeffrey Hammonds lined a ball off his skull. I mean, it could it could have killed him. Um, he was only 32 years old in, during, in that 93 season. Right. And and he recovered. They they put him on the the what was then known as the disabled list, and for about a month, uh, while while his skull recovered, I I think, and then uh, he got into a fight with uh, Johnny Oates, who was then the Orioles manager, and the Orioles released him, and he he never played again. That so. was it. Yeah, he played thirty games in '93, hit one home run. So in his total of three years in Baltimore, he played in. Let's see. Let's count the games here. He played in uh, 55, 185 games over three seasons, and he hit 24 home runs. So we're talking about maybe one of the worst trades in Major League history. Right. Because Kurt Schilling was, became a Hall of Fame pitcher, and uh, Steve Finley was a, was a terrific outfielder for a couple of organizations for another, another decade. Harnish was an excellent yep. pitcher too. Yeah. So, uh, so, so Glenn Davis lives Makes on. Makes the in, list. Uh, right. Yeah, uh, and it, in, injuries were certainly a factor, but it just—I don't—I don't know. Even if he'd stayed healthy, he, well, he wasn't even playing that well. So it just, True. just, just a weird, just a weird situation with with Glenn Davis. So uh, a couple more basketball ones I wanted to reel off here, uh, Joe. This one will uh, uh, hit your heart because we're going back to Chicago yes. with uh, Derrick Rose's false step in the um, in the, in the playoffs. Yep, I, I believe in two thousand and twelve. Yeah. He, he was the MVP that year. He was having a phenomenal season. Uh, they were playing the Sixers, I believe, in the first, first round of the run. playoffs. Yep. And uh, he was he, he made a drive to the basket, and, and near the baseline he had a false step. And I think he tore his ACL. His ACL, yep. yep. And and he was an MVP that was never the same after. He's still a, in the league and a, a good player, but, but he was never no. uh, an MVP-type player again. Yeah, and you know the the one thing about him is this. I mean, he had a lot of good players around him. Uh, you know, the the year that happened, the Bulls drafted Jimmy Butler. So you know they they, they had Jimmy Butler. Uh, you know, Joakim uh, Noah. You know, two guys who were not only you know very good offensively, but but very good defensively, and 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 a lot of great role role players around them. You know, Carlos Boozer, established veteran, mm. Rip Hamilton, a good good established veteran, uh, Kyle Korver, who at the time was was one of the better three point shooters in the NBA. So. So yeah, it's it's a you know what if now could, could if, they have challenged could they have challenged LeBron in the Heat? Well, that that's the thing. I, I I was going through it and and so the following now that particular season, 2012, uh, LeBron and company beat the Thunder to to win the NBA title. And that, was LeBron, I don't, that was LeBron's first title. Yes, and so and so I I don't to, to be honest, you know, would they have beaten that team? No, I don't think so. Uh, the following year, they beat the Spurs, uh, you know, in seven games, the famous Ray Allen three that extended the series. Would they have beaten them then? Probably not. Now, now the following year, and, and you know, I love him to death. He's one of my favorite. Dwayne Wade. I mean, he he started to crumble a little bit, and so that would have been a year where you know, if he had remained healthy. You know, I think that, you know, they could have challenged, uh, you know, LeBron and company for 
that supremacy, at least in the Eastern Conference. They would have still had to have gotten through through the Spurs, but you know I would have given them a, a puncher's chance, you know, 35, 40% chance of, uh, of beating the Spurs. Uh, would they have established a, a dynasty? Probably not, but... Uh, Still, they, they could have had their their chance of, of at least one title if he had stayed uh, healthy because that 2014-15 season, you know, they pick up uh, Pau Gasol, um, Nico Miritich, who they had draft rights a couple of years earlier, finally started playing. So, you know, Marco team, uh, Bellinelli. Yeah, I mean, he, he was another shooter. Uh, so, so yeah, they were they were very very uh, deep, and but still, you know, that 2014-15 season, they actually played the heat um in the in the semifinals right. uh, and and so and so that was uh that was a case where actually uh i take that back uh, the, the, lebron would have been on no no it was the it was the heat uh so you know so you know so that was a case where you know they just uh they had a 2-1 series lead in the semifinals and then lost three in a row but uh, I I don't think he was the same player. Yeah, I mean, just was not before the injury. He was peak Derrick Rose, the guy that led Memphis yep. and John Calipari to a to a national title, uh, yeah. a, a high draft choice, and and and, and the MVP of the league. They and just I, took a false step. And on top of that, you know, he, he was playing in Chicago, his hometown, where you know, uh, pride of Simeon High School, which was uh, a, a basketball factory, uh, you know, still is, and. You know they really embraced him, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know after that ACL, he tore he tore he tore the meniscus in his knee twice. Since then, uh, he he just uh, you know bad luck after bad luck, it just just didn't work out. It seemed like the engine was always too powerful for the for the car. With Derrick Rose, so he, some of the slashes to the basket that he would make were just unstoppable. Yeah. He he's you know he, sort of similar to James Harden, not. They're not built the same, obviously, but in terms of attacking the basket, when he was like a hundred percent himself, man, nobody could do it like him. And then he developed a little bit of a, you know, he was a good outside shooter as well. Yeah, so. he had like an yeah. Iverson esque first step yeah. there uh, to the basket that was virtually unguardable. Yeah. So uh, another obscure basketball one I wanted to mention was uh, Greg Oden. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. The, the, the first uh, overall pick out of Ohio <laughs> State, uh, drafted by the Portland Trailblazers, and. Um, and, God, and, probably the last big man that, that went number one, maybe. Yeah, one of them uh, for sure. But it just never got going with the guy because he, he's always battling injuries. Uh, he had an injury history before he was drafted. Uh, the Blazers took a chance on him, and it just never materialized in the in, in the NBA. He was he was an interesting looking guy because he had this face that he had a he had an old looking face like there, there was just something yeah. about his facial features that made him look mm-hmm. about ten years older than he actually was. He he was like twenty two going on like thirty five or whatever just what just, just, like, just yeah. based on his appearance. But um, a, a heralded big man uh, in in college, uh, the number one overall pick, and it, he, it just never happened for him uh, in the NBA because just injuries just never let him get going so what well, there was one other chicago it's like we keep hitting these guys from chicago but the, i think Beating the other up on me yeah the <laughs> other name that needs to be mentioned is gail sayers again someone from quite a while ago but uh somebody a running back for the bears who who had a five it was a five-year career that was beyond spectacular in terms of his ability to, to just take the ball you know one one step and you know he's gone um with kick returns and and catching passes and um he, he tore his knee up right 
Yep. And yep. it was and, uh, it was pretty much over for him after uh, the the knee injury. Oh yeah, it's a, it's something that you know he and Koufax same type of thing. You know, short careers, but you know, so spectacular that they're you know revered. I mean, you know, Sayers scoring six touchdowns in a game. You know, in every, every which way. You know, kick returns. You know, rushing touchdowns. Uh, he was e- electric. And he's a Hall of Famer, which is yep. he's probably he probably has the smallest body of work of any Hall of Famer uh, in, in Canton. Um, so that's all you need to know, really. Uh, yep. You guys have anyone else? That was it. That was most everybody yeah, on my that's list. A, that's a pretty yep. good list. So I mean, yep. I'm sure I'm sure we're missing people. And again, we're yep. not talking about like the Doc Gooden and the Daryl Strawberries or the Tiger <laughs> Woods or or anyone that else. Anyone had their career shortened by self-inflicted events or or just decisions and stuff like that. So we're not talking about those guys, but uh, let us let us know who we're missing. Yeah, send, um, us, send us a tweet or yeah, something. Uh, Greg underscore Swatek, uh, Joe Ferraro FNP. And, and it's uh, Joshua R underscore Smith. Right. So yeah. s- send us some tweets. Uh, who are we missing off this list? Because I'm sure there's some good names that, that we didn't think of, but I, yeah. I think that's a fairly comprehensive list yeah. uh, covering a lot of different sports. For so, sure. Uh, but, but let us know uh, who we are missing. Uh, reach out to us. All right, uh, it's boat time. Uh, who uh, are we throwing on the boat this week? Boy, sorry, Josh has a good one. Go ahead, Joe. You were going to say something. <laughs> sorry, Greg. One of your former guys, uh, Mickey Calloway. Oh yeah, yeah. This, this is a good, this, this good, good one. So. so you know, this is uh, this is a case where Mickey Calloway w- was being questioned for not bringing in his closer Edwin Diaz early enough during a post-game news conference and then, you know, a, a reporter uh, uh, after the game. For Newsday, I For believe. Newsday, yeah. correct. Uh, you know, comes up to, you know, harmlessly says, hey, see you tomorrow, Mickey, uh, nonchalantly. And then Mickey Calloway goes nuts, you know, accused them of, you know, of being smart with him and, uh, you know, jawed at him. And then all of a sudden this gets the attention of, of uh, Jason Vargas, who almost uh, <laughs> went up to him and charged him, had, had to be held back by by Noah Syndergaard and, and Carlos and, and, Gomez, uh, actually threatened to knock him the bleep out. Yeah, so, both Callaway and Vargas were MFing this reporter yeah, and stuff and, like that. Yeah, so. while, while this is happening, uh, while, while Vargas is charging him, uh, yeah, uh, Mickey says, you know, get this, um, you know, MF out of here. So... Yeah, I mean, he did something harmless. I mean, I, I can understand if he blew up, if, you know, they kept, you know, badgering him and badgering him and badgering him and then and wouldn't stop. But all harmless, you know, see you tomorrow, Mickey. And, you know, and, and he, he even as uh, Mickey Calloway said that, you know, he accused of being smart with him. Uh, you know, the reporter said, no, there was nothing. There was nothing meant by that, Mickey. I just, I just said, see, you know, wanted to say, see you tomorrow. That's there, there it. Had, there has to be prior history here, like where Callaway doesn't like this guy, or well, they they're, see they're, each they're, other every day. Right. So, so for, there, there has to have been a preview. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. It seems like you, you don't just go blasting someone because they say have a nice right. day, even if they meant it sarcastically. So there has, so Callaway hasn't liked this guy. Vargas probably hasn't liked this guy, and, and this was the incident that just ignited. And, and blew it out of proportion. So, but but still, I, the the guy's there doing his job. He deserves uh, respect. <laughs> They're still going to the boat. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Right, Mickey Callaway, former Indians uh, pitching coach, now the man, now the manager of the Mets. Um, I am throwing uh, the 
organizers of the NBA awards uh, on on the boat. So I have no problem. Thank with, you. I have no problem with the NBA awards, but but they're doing it a month too late. The, these are regular season awards they're doing after the postseason has already taken place. Now I get that some TV executives for Turner want this splashy presentation and this splashy show that they could sell a lot of advertising for. I mean, I get the business reason why they're doing this, but still like naming the MVP after a regular season award after the playoffs are over, like Giannis Adetokounmpo won the MVP after his bucks sort of crashed out of the playoffs with four straight losses to the, to the Toronto Raptors. So you're kind of, these awards are losing their buzz because they're so after the fact, it seems. Well, not only that, they they started at 9 p.m. I, it was Monday night, right? Yeah. And I, I they're was... In, they're in L.A., so they don't want to do it too early in, yeah. uh, in L.A., I guess. I, I just cannot believe for the... I, I couldn't understand for the life of me why it had to carry on until like 11.30 p.m. I'm sitting at, at work here. No one cares that I was waiting for this story, and I barely got anything in on it. But it was like... Why does it? Why does a, a sports league need to have a three-hour awards show? Uh, it it, may, it makes it's no strictly sense strictly for TV advertising. That, that that's the only reason, that's the only logical reason for it. So now, right. now you guys would know uh, better than me, but uh, when uh, did this start? Because it, it's been a, a couple, case a couple just years two ago. years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's, I think it's only been two, maybe three years. The third, maybe it was the third year. The reason why is because Turner's paying all this money right. for this NBA contract, and they want another way to sell advertising and to recoup some of this money they're spending on the NBA. So they said, "Hey, let's do a big award show after the season." Yeah. Should so. I should I tell the story about how I was cursing Giannis while he was standing up there accepting his award? So this is <laughs> happening the other night here at work, and I was I didn't have the volume up very loud, and I'm like I, I turned it on at like 11 15 because i'm like what in the heck is going on like why don't i have a story yet about the mvp being named john cannon's even like well who's gonna get who's gonna what you know i'm like everybody knows Giannis is winning the mvp just give it to him so i tune in it's 11 30 whatever it is Giannis atetokounmpo gets the award he goes up to receive it he starts one of this giving this speech i'm i'm not really listening to it i'm just stewing at my desk because i'm so mad that i still don't have the story so i'm like literally cursing him. i'm like shut up stop talking i want this story i'm like basically cursing him out well i come to find out the next day that he was up there crying uh, talking about his dead father and how his father <laughs> had inspired him and i'm like God, i'm like i feel like the worst person on earth what a, what a heartless sob you are, yeah Josh. i mean i i mean I, i've had i known i probably would have been cursing him so bad i i, I would imagine but um yeah i felt terrible <laughs> after hearing that it's heartfelt uh his speech that he gave um you know about his his, his dad so yeah but but still uh, it, the NBA awards were fine. I, I I know it wasn't a big presentation, but they just had a press conference after they yeah. named the MVP. Like, and and, and there's so cool moments. Like Kevin Durant cried thanking his mother when he won the MVP uh, uh, about four or five years ago. So Rachel Nichols had a great uh, uh, piece on it ahead of, ahead of her show or on her show one day, and she she mentioned how some of those moments were so great. Like they had she showed a clip of the, the time that Iverson won it, and they gave it to him during the playoff run, whatever it was the year that they played against the Lakers in the finals. And the crowd was just, they were able to participate in that. It was at this, it was at the arena before a game. The crowd was all there. 
they screamed so loud that he had to stand there and wait for them to stop screaming because he couldn't they couldn't hear him over you know uh the, the loudness of the crowd these are great moments it was more spontaneous too the the reactions and stuff it yeah. wasn't as made for tv specially packaged presentation and the crowd and the, the home crowd of uh, of that player should be able to celebrate that with the player i think that's that is a much more special right. you know moment than the way they've created an Academy Awards right. type the only, field. The only thing that was missing was Turner can't squeeze tons of advertising yeah. revenue out of out of sponsors. Yep. So no, I'm sorry. I mean, this after the playoffs, this is not must watch TV. It's right. not even close. I mean, the, the MVP is being debated during the regular season constantly. Okay, let the let the debate build, 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 build. And then announce it, and then you might actually get that, more viewers. I mean, that, that, that's that, how that, it works. That's my problem with it is the news is too far removed from the actual event because the playoffs don't count. So so the the regular season ends in mid-April, and now at the middle of two months later, we're going to announce regular season awards. It, it, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make you're sense. You're at the point right now where people are you know, pondering where, where are all these big free agents going to go. Yeah, no one cares there, now. No one cares about the, who, the who's going to win the MVP. Just right. uh, moved on. But everybody's yeah. already right. already thinking about next year. Yeah. Find, find another way for Turner to recoup some of this money. Yeah. So. Uh, Josh has a good one for the boat here. Oh, yeah. So last week when I was uh, off, I did notice that there was a, a terrible uh, brawl that occurred at a youth baseball game in Colorado uh, among adults on the field. Uh, and, it, and it took place at a game uh, among seven-year-olds. And this was a group of people that were just swinging for the fences on each other. Uh, but, you know, even some women were involved in this brawl over a call that a 13-year-old umpire made at a, at a game involving seven-year-olds. Uh, some people were arrested. Uh, uh, there was video being used to try to track down somebody who, who was sucker-punched. What's that? There's still a guy at large, apparently. Like they're right. looking for one of these guys that sucker-punched one of these dudes. Yeah, it's just that's a terrible testimonial about where we are as a, as a country and how uh, – you know, this whole podcast is about sports, and a lot of times we're in here making light of it. Not enough people make light of sports, and not enough people take it for what it is. It's entertainment, people. You know, uh, recreation. Even, it's recreation, people. Like th- these kids are out there; they're trying. You're trying to teach them something. You're trying to sh- show them how to have fun playing a game, and the parents. Uh, uh, as is almost always the case, are, are ruining it for the kids. And this situation was just incredibly embarrassing. So anybody who was on the field participating in that brawl is going on right. the boat. And give and give the 13-year-old umpire a little break, too. Like, he's actually has the guts to be, uh, to yeah. be an umpire. Which, yeah. I mean, it should, it should almost be a requirement that if, if you are a parent that wants to attend one of your child's baseball games, if you want to sit in the stands at a baseball game, and say something, you have to have umpired a game in, in your life. It, I've, it, it, yeah, it, it I've always said, I, I've never said that, the, that if, you're a, if you're a parent that's watching, but I have said that if you are a coach, if you decide to volunteer and coach a game in any, any youth level, you should also be required to participate in, in, a, in, in umpiring. You should, you should officiate as well in that league. You should be required to if you want to coach because it gives you – the other side of it it gives you that perspective i've been on that side of it as a youth umpire it's it's terrible i mean i can i, I was talking to my dad about this when i saw the video because my dad got me into umpiring when we were younger my dad was my coach my youth baseball coach forever and he got me into umpiring to make a little money when i was a kid and um give back to the league that i that i played in for you know 10 years or 18 uh, 13 years um and i can still i still see this one guy's face uh occasionally 
um, because I because he screamed at me and cursed me out so bad at a baseball game involving like nine and ten year olds. I can see the guy's face today. Like he was just a lunatic. Right. And uh, you sh- I was a kid. I was 15 years old. I was trying to give back to the league. I'll, I'll amend my comment. You can attend and you and you could provide construct. You could cheer. You could provide constructive comments. But if you want to level a criticism, yeah, you can't criticize anything about what's going on until you have umpired a game. Yeah, especially at that level. You know what? This situation is is bad in and of itself. But the other issue also is that. People hear of incidents like this, and now across the board, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, leagues are having difficulty attracting officials, and it's because of incidents. No wonder, like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in, in basketball, hundred percent. Parents have come out of the stands and like punched referees and like suplexed referees on like the hardwood floor almost. So. It's it's the most thankless job ever. When you when you when when you're good, no one talks about you. No one notices you. When uh, if people think you're not good, then they're all over you. So it's just it, you're not making a lot of money. Yeah, it's just the most th- thankless job ever. And and what I the point that I want to keep driving home is that these these people are they're doing it because they love the game, the sport, and they are giving back to the sport. They are giving back to the community by, you know providing an official for the game so the games can happen so shut your mouths people like unless you're gonna do it just shut up about it because it's you know it's just it's yeah, insane don't, that don't criticize until you've done it no, I mean, it's uh you have to have a tremendous amount of courage i did it once and i'll, I'll be uh i'll just say that i i may have chickened out right after that because uh, i umped and it was a close game and you know it was a bases loaded situation one run game three two count and uh and so I, I had to call strike three on that on that batter, and so and so I, I wondered about that. Yeah. I was like, geez, did I make the right call? It was exactly. a borderline call, and I think the the batter who I actually happened to knew at one point came up to me. He's like, "Yeah, Joe, that was a strike." So I was like, "Okay, okay. that's good." But uh, it makes you feel but uh, but no, it was uh, it, it, at that point. I mean, I was a, a teen as well. I'm yeah. like, geez, I I mean, I don't want to determine the, the outcome. Of a game, and so for all these umpires uh, who who are in that situation, countless of times, you know, hey, they uh, people they want to make the right call, you know. Yeah, they're not out there trying to. You mess know, they it up, they, right? they want to be objective. They want to make the right call. They're not trying they, to derail they, your son. They don't want to or daughter's major league <laughs> career. They don't want to be a part of the outcome of the game, and so 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 I I stopped at that point. Uh, you know, kind of, it may have been cowardly on my my part to do so, but you know, I did not want to be part of the outcome of a game. Yeah. So, for all those umpires, officials out there, you know, the most, uh, some of the most courageous people out there, seen or to be seen. Well, I could, I'll mention one real quick. That's uh, that's a local one. Uh, Greg did a story in, in Sunday's paper. He, I was, I was going to talk about. That. Were you going to talk about that? Yeah. Okay, go, I, go, go ahead, say it. Well, I, well, I'll start. I'll start, and then you can finish. Uh, Chuck Foreman, uh, uh, Frederick High School legendary um, athlete, former Minnesota Vikings um, All Pro running back, came back to uh, uh, participate at a, at a at a football youth football camp at his alma mater on uh, Sunday. Greg went out there, did a great. Uh, story on the event. Got to talk to Chuck. Got to sit and watch Chuck while he uh, he he talked to some kids. He interacted with the kids, and he also signed some autographs. And I'll let Greg pick it up from there. It, it, it was it, it was interesting. I, I had never met Chuck before. It was cool to see him, and um, 
when I when I got I got there right at the start of the camp. It was a four hour camp from one to five at Frederick High School on 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 the new turf field that was a figment of no one's imagination when Chuck was the field didn't even exist when Chuck Foreman uh, was playing tight end at, at a high level for the Frederick Cadets. Went to Miami and then became a star running back for the Vikings. So Chuck, he's he's having ankle problems. Like he had to wheel. He's basically getting around with the help of a little scooter that he could prop his left leg on because his left ankle is killing him. And this stems from a surgery that happened a couple of years ago. Chuck, it seems like he's a slow healer. Like it, it takes him a while to shake some. Of well, this he stuff is six, off. 68. Yeah, he's, he's he's in great shape. Uh, he said he, he he bikes 15 miles every morning. Um, and, and, and he, and he looks good for, for, for he his does. age. And, yeah. I, and, and, and trust me, I, this is not related to his career. It's kind of shocking that he doesn't have more physical ailments. I've talked to him about this. Uh, he, he's one of the few probably from that era that, that is relatively unscathed from his playing days. Anyway, go ahead. Right. Um, so, so he's, he can, he can walk, he can move. Yeah. He doesn't need the scooter, but the scooter helps him uh, get around. And he says he can't be on his feet for long stretches at a time. So that, that's why he has it. So I, I, so right at the start of this camp, I walk up and I, I shake my hand. And I introduce myself. I mentioned you, Josh, because you have a bit of a rapport and a relationship with him, having done stories on him in, in the past. He said, "Oh yeah, how, how's how's he doing? I hope he's doing well." And I start asking him questions because I notice his ankles bothering him, and uh, he's he's polite. He he answers them, but it, you could tell like he doesn't want to be talking to me <laughs> right now. He wants wants to go say hello to. Uh, other people because this is right at the start of the event so he says okay buddy or, or whatever it sort of gives me the polite brush off so i said that's okay i mean i'll, I'll get a chance to catch up with them later it, it, it's a long event so um so eventually uh i i would go over periodically and just join a conversation he's had or just hang out there and then we'd start talking and it, it built the the ice began to melt between us a little bit and we just started uh talking about just life in general and I, i'd ask him some questions for my story but but just we were just talking like normal people un, unrelated to what I, yeah. what I was doing so eventually so we're under this tent it's, it's hot it's like 90 something degrees and this and the sun is being so we're under this tent on the on the track at frederick high and i look over and there's a guy along the fence there and he's wearing a vikings purple chuck foreman jersey he said hey that guy's got your jersey on and chuck being the great guy that he is he, he calls the guy over and he says, "Hey, what's your name?" And and the guy gives him his name. And he said, "I'll if you want, I'll sign your jersey for him." So like he, this guy wasn't bothering Chuck. Like Chuck called this guy over and, and offered to um to sign his jersey. By so, the way, if you go to Minnesota to a Vikings game, you would not believe the number of forty four Chuck Foreman jerseys that are still in the crowd. Right. All right. Go ahead. Um. So so and and we start talking to this guy, and, and that attracts a bit of a crowd. And, and another guy comes over, eventually, and I and I won't name him, but he but he's from he's from Middletown. And he says, hey, Chuck, I have your 1973 NFC Rookie of the Year trophy. And, and, and Chuck that like does a double take. He's like, you have what? <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, I have your 1973 NFC Rookie of the Year trophy. And he start, and they start describing he's describing the trophy to Chuck. And Chuck's like giving him details. And he goes, yep, 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 yep. It's the, it's the trophy. And Chuck's like, how did you get that? And he's like, oh, I bought it on eBay. Chuck apparently Chuck moved. wasn't selling it right Chuck didn't even know it was missing he thought it was like packed away in some storage box or whatever Chuck apparently had moved from a townhouse to another place in Minnesota and this moving company apparently lifted um lifted some stuff from him and and put it on eBay so this guy was able to purchase this stolen trophy from Chuck's on eBay and 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 Chuck 
And uh, and then the conversation continues between Chuck and this guy, and he eventually pulls out of his bag. Uh, what he says is a game-worn white Minnesota Vikings jersey with purple numerals that Chuck wore, I believe, Chuck claims he, he wore it in, in one of the two NFC Championship games he played in. Uh, but this three, guy, he played in three. Or, or three. Um, uh, and Chuck said, he grabs the jersey, he says, let me see that. And then Chuck <laughs> starts like looking over the, he starts feeling the texture of the jersey and uh, looking for like distinctive marks and stuff. And he goes, yep, you, you, this is my jersey. Oh, uh, my God. And he's like, how did you get this? And, he, and the guy explains he got it on eBay. Chuck knew this thing was missing because he said that he always, because he said when he get something about the locker room that day, he went to look for his jersey and he couldn't find it. So he knows this thing has been gone for many years. And it's now it's now in possession of this guy who's ta- who just presented it to him. So the guy asked Chuck to sign this jersey, this stolen jersey that is technically Chuck Foreman's. And Chuck goes, man, and he, and he always says, man. He says, man, all the time, yeah. right? He goes, man, it never fails. Like I show up at one of these events, and people are, are people are presenting my me my own stuff to sign. <laughs> this is Chuck's stuff that he's being yeah. asked to sign by by these by these fans and these people seeking his autograph. So Chuck, being the, again the uh, great guy that he is, he signs the jersey for him because he says, "Man, my my problem's not with you because he's he's mad at the people that stole this stuff from him. He th- th- this guy from Middletown just just happened to buy the jersey, so he signs it for him. And then the guy asks Chuck to like stand up and hold the jersey <laughs> so he could like take a picture of like Chuck holding the autographed jersey. <laughs> and Chuck he, he, he did it. He, he obliged. It. So. I'm I'm off to the side. I'm I'm dying laughing yeah. just because just the whole dynamic of Chuck's being presented his own stolen stuff to sign for other people, and he's got to give back. Right, yeah. and, and Chuck has to hand his jersey back to this guy who 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 bought it on eBay. Great so, story, great story. The story was written well. Greg's telling of that story was fantastic. Go read it on our website. Yeah. So uh, so it was just it was just. Uh, odd dynamic and and chuck and i were were fast friends uh yeah. b- by the end of the event so we, we, we he was he was laughing too like don't get me wrong he was he was upset that this stuff was stolen from him and he said the first thing i do when i get home is i'm going through all those boxes and i'm going to see what's there and, and what's not there yep. because he's mad at this moving company but um it, it was it was just a, a fun event to be at so um, do you have one, Joe? I'm going to go with the low-hanging fruit, actually. <laughs> Something that's going on right now, the College World Series uh, Game 3, uh, rooting really hard for, for Michigan, the, the cold-weather team. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you, you get to, to this stage, and, and usually you know, teams from warm-weather climates, you know, with the exclusion of maybe an Oregon State, uh, but, you know, you're – uh, you know, USC's and Texas oh, yeah. and yeah. Florida, Long Beach, you know, wherever. yeah, uh, Long Beach State, you know, LSU. I mean, warm yeah. weather teams, you know, generally do well. So, you know, go, going for the the cold weather team to take it all, and that, that game's going on right now. Yeah, and it's the winner take all. It's the third yep. game in the series. So, uh, yeah, I did. I saw something crazy. I, I mentioned this right before we came in here. I saw a screen grab from, I guess, during a telecast, the telecast last night. They showed somebody in the stands, again, I, I don't remember his name, unfortunately. It was a picture from the 1960s, early 1960s from Michigan, and it said something underneath his name. It said that he pitched a doubleheader once at, at Michigan and threw 313 pitches in one day. 
was talking about Sandy Koufax earlier. Yep. Similar, similar storyline. The analytics nerds, their minds are totally blown. So. 313 pitches in one day. I think most starting pitchers today probably don't three, throw 313 pitches in four outings. No, yeah, because like 100 pitches is like the yeah. magic number now. Like once yeah. you hit 100, like you're not going much beyond that. Yeah. So. Once, you, once you go through the, the batting order a third time, you lose you're all out. effectiveness. Yep. Apparently, right. Yep. That's what the numbers <laughs> tell us, right? Right. All right, guys. Uh, Josh, welcome back. Thank Joe, you. thank you. And no uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next week back here on Just Another Sports Podcast.